we prefer to just kind of minimize the sin in our lives. We will just claim to people that we have given our lives to Jesus, right? So many people say that. I have given my life over to Jesus as Lord. But what they mean is they think of their life as a pie. And they have given some of it, but they have retained a slice, whether that slice is small or whether it's big. And in that slice, that's dedicated to their life with unbelievers or false Christians or carnal Christians. And they can behave and talk and act. You all, I feel like this is how that, that works. All right. I don't know where you lost me, but nobody thinks that they are a bad person in this life. That's kind of where we were at. Ask anyone and they will believe that they're good enough. Ultimately, what they mean by that is they've given enough of the pie of their life to God. That should satisfy him. He should be happy with what I have given him. He can't really be Lord and Master of all, right? That is where too many end up. And when they do that, they convince themselves simply overlook sin that he will save. And that denies the holiness of God. It denies the eternality of God. It denies the majesty of God. And it ultimately minimizes the very work of redemption that saves us. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, wrote, Great was the work of creation. And it was, creating from nothing everything that exists. Great was the work of creation, but greater was the work of redemption. It cost more to redeem us than to make us. In the one, there was but the speaking of the word. God spoke everything into existence, but in the other, to save a people for himself, there was the shedding of blood. And that was the blood of his son, Indeed, Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the problem is that the shedding of our blood, the giving of our own lives, cannot save us and it cannot save anyone else because the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. So we live in this world where we know that all are created. All will be judged but not all will be saved. And that is why we are called by Christ himself to go out and proclaim the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone that we come into contact with. Because God loved us. He loved us, so he sent his son to die for us. The letter of 1 John, it's written to give us that much needed assurance that we truly belong to Jesus Christ, that we are saved by his work that we're covered by his precious and substitutionary death on that cross so that we might eagerly await his coming someday, so that we can eagerly await standing before him in judgment. 
because his promise is life. We read in John 1, 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word this morning, we pray that by the work of your spirit in each and every one of us that you will peel away those things that distract us from learning and from growing in your word, that you will convict us, you will draw us ever nearer to your son, to a life of faithful service, that you will spark in us a desire to worship you as the one true living God. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 1 John, the Apostle John, as, as you know, has laid out three categories of tests for all professing Christians, all believers, to apply to themselves to really answer the question of whether they believe in Jesus, right? That's, we say we believe, the Bible tells us what that means. What does the word believe mean? And that is indeed what John has laid out here carefully across five chapters, He has included the moral test, the test of obedience, the social test, the test of love, and the doctrinal test, right belief, and we have gone over and over these. But we saw last week that beginning in this chapter 5, that the tests are all brought together and they're mixed together in this one summary passage. And we began to think of these as comprising the circle of life. I can't come up with a better way of saying it, of a Christian, a circle of life. At the center of that is the work of God, the Holy Spirit. And we are born again. He brings a spiritually dead person to life. And by our faith, we demonstrate that we're made new, that we're new creations of Christ, that we're part of this new family, a family of believers, everyone born of God, everyone children. We are families in Christ. That's how the Bible phrases that time and time again. Now, we answered the question, why does John now weave these tests together that he had previously laid out kind of in lockstep in different ways, though he circled back to them, he always kept them separate. But he wants us to see now that these are not three tests where you you sort of average it out. I pick two of the three, I leave out the one I don't like. No, these are so tightly interwoven together that you cannot pull the thread in a Christian's life and remove one of these characteristics. They are part of what a Christian's life really is. And we call this a circle of Christian life because it's not linear. We don't move from one to the next to the next. Rather, we bounce back and forth between these different categories as we continue throughout life to be sanctified and to examine ourselves and see where we stand in our relationship with God. So let's read our text, 1 John 5.1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Sorry, I got to move this. This All right. You know, musicians are picky about where their stuff is, so. Well, in verse 1, 
We explored that truth last week that every believer is born of God. It's a true and miraculous event in our life where God brings us to Christ by grace through faith. And it's his doing, not ours. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says it is the gift of God, not a result of works, not a result of us being smarter and doing things better so that no one may boast, he says. And we dwelt on that truth for some time, though John just assumes it. He assumes that everybody knows what it is that we're talking about. And then we moved on from there. But we might have moved too quickly because I saw a question or two come up and I just want to say for those who dwell on this concept of being born again, am I born again, what I would say to you is what we are called to is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That is what we're called to do. We're not called to stew over this born again concept. If you believe, you will know. That is what John is writing this letter. That's what the letter of 1 John does. If you have faith, if you believe, then you know. Uh, So we begin in these verses then to follow the circle of life back and forth. And he began by looking at our faith that Jesus is the Christ. And that was a shorthand version for all of the doctrinal truths about Jesus. We think of this in terms of we can only know the living word, Jesus Christ, by the written word, what God has given us. There is no other way to know him. There is nothing that we can come up with. That is how we know God. And so you move then back and forth between these tests. You start seeing belief. You see love of God. You see obedience. You see love of fellow Christians. And then you naturally bounce between them. How you see your life and when you balance these and how you answer the question of do I fit this category, John says, well, you fit this category if you look at the other category and you just kind of keep moving. So if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you have placed your faith in him, you believe he's the very son of God, it is a sign that you've been born of God, you're part of a new family, and you don't stop there because that has entailments to it. It has real consequences to it. Romans 8.14 says, for who all, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Uh, verse 16 gives us this assurance. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Uh, And we saw in 1 John earlier in chapter 3, verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. And so all of that points to the fact uh, that if we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God himself, that we would naturally move to love. And that's what John does, because we would naturally love our Father. And as children of the Father, we would naturally love our brothers and sisters in Christ. But as we begin to think about our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ... Uh, All of those that we look upon and see that indeed they are part of our family. They are born of the same father just like we are. We have to ask ourselves constantly, is this love that I think that I'm showing to these people, is this the love that God is calling for? Is, Is this true love that I'm showing to those around me? In other words, can we read this verse that I'm about ready to read? And and when I read it, can we say, yes, that's true. That's true of me. And it's definitely true of our church when we look at it. And it's definitely true of the church of Jesus Christ spread around the world. Can we say that with confidence when we read John 13, 34 and 35? Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's the standard. He gave his life for us when we didn't even like him to save us. So that's the standard of love. You also are to love one another that way. Uh, Verse 35 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So can we say that's true? Do we see the church and say, well, it stands out so greatly from the world, everybody wonders, what is the deal with those people? What does it mean to have Christ in you? That's the challenge for us. Now, when we look at ourselves, we have to remember always that we only see what's on the outside when we look at people, right? Ourselves and others. Ourselves we can see on the inside, mostly, but we often deceive ourselves, too, when we look at our motives. We see on the outside. And sadly, this is where I think we're challenged by that verse that John just gave us because sometimes the world looks far more loving, at least in the standards that get used, than the Christian church does. So that's a challenge to us to how we love one another. But more important than that is remembering how God evaluates that in our lives. God doesn't look to the outside. He looks to the inside, right? He has a different measure than we like to apply You see, all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. We think everything that we do is good. We want people to see the good things we do. But the Lord weighs the spirit. The Lord weighs the motive. That's Proverbs 16.2. He's not looking just at our external deeds. We have to ask, is our love, is it grounded in truth? Is it grounded in the very word of God? Are we indeed iron sharpening iron with each other? Do we call each other to accountability? Do we improve our walks with Christ? Are we willing to bear the consequences of standing faithfully on God's word? And is our love intentional and sacrificial, or is it just based on emotion and the people that we happen to like around us? In other words, how do we truly know that we love one another in a God-honoring, obedient way? Well, John gives us the answer to that. We move then to another part of the circle of life. And in verse 2, we saw last week that we know that we love one another when we love God. Right? That was the, the test because our love grows and it emanates from the very love of God and it stems forward towards his children. And this is where we really pick up then from last week because he then gives us a test. And it's a test that most people really don't like. And it's 1 John 5, 3. How do you know you love God? He says, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. That's the measure. That's how you determine whether or not you really love God. And before you get quick to say, well, that's one verse, we can discount that. That is consistent with the testimony of Scripture. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Uh, He continued in verse 23 and 24, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. This is a very binary test that is being laid out. If you love me, you'll obey. If you do not love me, you will not. You will discount. You will walk away from the word. You will pick and choose. And that's not what he's saying. Later, Jesus says something I think is fairly profound. He's talking about going to the cross. He's explaining to his disciples that he is about to lay down his life and pay the penalty for sin for those who will repent and believe in him. And he characterizes those people as friends. And then he says this in John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Hebrews 5.9 says that Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
It's just repeated over and over throughout Scripture. It's not different in the New Testament and the Old Testament. The Old Testament is chock full of the same thing, of God abhorring certain types of worship of the Israelites when they went apostate. He said in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. I don't care about your religious rituals. I care about where your heart is and whether you're trying to obey me. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. He says rebellion right? Disobedience, not listening to the word of God, is as the sin of divination. It is the same as witchcraft and presumption. Deciding you know better which parts you want to pick. Presumption is as iniquity. Solomon was the wisest man of all human history, given the gift of wisdom by God himself. And after he examines all of life, He ends the book of Ecclesiastes this way. The end of the matter, all has been heard. I've looked at everything he says. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. That's it. We won't do it perfect. We can't. That's the difference between the Old and the New Testaments, actually. Is there, we live under the grace of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, God's law, helps condemn us of our sin because we cannot do it perfect, but we can be forgiven through Christ. But what God is pointing us to here is that he cares about the heart, the motives, what underlies all these commands. And this is important to keep in mind, why we obey. We do not obey God's commands to earn salvation. That's an impossibility. Nobody can actually obey 100%. This is not what this is calling us to. We do not obey God's commands to earn our salvation. We obey God's commands because we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and we love God. That is what John is driving us to. It's interesting because given the full testimony of Scripture and this repeated command that God cares about our obedience that results purely from a heart that's devoted to Him. He's not interested in rituals. He's not interested in the things that we do to tick boxes. He wants our hearts devoted to Him and to obedience. It's amazing that we actually have such a difficult time with this concept. We just, it's particularly true in the West because we're very self-autonomous. We don't like it when people tell us what to do, even if that person is God himself, our creator. The reality is because people love their sin. We just love our sin. But the love of God is in direct opposition to this because if you love God, it generates within you a desire to obey his commands, to be a set apart, to be holy for he is holy, to bring God glory with all of your life. Everything you do is an act of worship in this life. But there are two errors that plague the church when it comes to talking about obedience. Both lose sight of God, both lose sight of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. In the second century church father, Tertullian, is purported to have said this about these two errors. He said, just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between these two errors. These two errors obscure the gospel. On one side, you have legalism or moralism. And on the other side, you have antinomianism. I can't come up with a 
really shorthand way of saying that one. Namas is law in Greek, antinomianism. So lawlessness is the best word I can come up with to simplify that. And the Bible says sin is lawlessness. Legalism, that's a common cry today. It's used wrongly all of the time. But legalism is what Jesus battled with the Pharisees, right? They were absolutely consumed with external appearances. They wanted everyone to observe how they followed the law of God. They were so consumed with this that they created literally thousands of additional rules, rules you will not find in Scripture, and they lost any heart for God. It was not driven by their love of God. They had no love for him. They had an obsession with religious ritual, what they could do to appear religious, how other people would look upon them. The error with legalism or moralism is that it would actually have one believe that we have to live perfect, holy, good lives in order to be saved. You see, that legalism would tell you that you need to live a certain way in order to be saved. And that is what you see goes so sideways in churches that follow this because, well, you obey today and you have eternal life and you're saved. You did that, now you're unsaved. You need to do this and then you'll be saved again. And, oh, you listen to that song, you're unsaved. You came to church, you're saved again. Now you watch that movie, you're unsaved. That is where it goes horribly wrong. It has lost sight of the gospel. The problem with legalism is it tells us that we have the ability to earn God's favor on our own, that we can make ourselves good in his sight, that that is within our power, that we can mystically and somehow magically generate within our own hearts a desire to obey all of God's law, even when it's opposed to culture, and that we'll actually obey him. It, in essence, places the entire burden, the onus of our salvation in our own hands. And this is why it's appealing to some, because it would tell us that we're in control, not God, and we'll let God know when we've decided what we want to do with our own eternal lives. But the Bible clearly says that that is God's work, not ours. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will... So, so both to want to obey, to desire to obey, that's not natural to the human heart, and to work, to actually do it, to actually obey for his good pleasure. Do you see who gets the glory in this? We're not looking for glory of, of men and women to applaud our religiosity and our behaviors. No, it is God who gets the glory of the Pharisees and scribes Jesus would look at them and say in Luke eleven forty six, 46, Woe to you, lawyers also. Lawyers were experts in the Bible, quite different than we use the term. Actually, today I would argue most lawyers wouldn't know the first word in the Bible, but back then, lawyer meant expert in the Bible. Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Legalism always breeds hypocrisy. It always does. Follow these rules and then behind closed doors in your house, people do completely different things. It always breeds hypocrisy. We know that salvation is through Christ, not through following some set of rules, right? We have freedom from that in Christ. In Galatians 5.1, he says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And he's referring to this pharisaical tradition. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. 
But that then leads us to the second problem. The people who want to shout and scream for freedom, Christ has set us free, therefore we're free to do anything. The problem that we have is, if you think of a swinging pendulum, we have the pendulum way out on one side. That's legalism. And instead of swinging it back to the centrality of God's word and his truth, we swing it all the way to the other side. And that is lawlessness and antinomianism. Uh, This is for people who truly do not know God. They may profess a belief in something, but they don't know God and love him. And they therefore, they embrace this relativistic view of morality and what's right and wrong, a lawless approach, and that is known as antinomianism. That error is based entirely on this false promise that since we are saved by Jesus and forgiven by him, we actually don't need to live a holy life. We don't need to live a good life. We don't need to adhere to his words. We can follow the world and do what we please. This is the error. This is why you hear me sometimes point out uh, with some bristling, I don't like the phrase once saved, always saved. It's not because I don't believe in eternal salvation. It is because it gets misused. People will use that as an excuse to say, once saved, always saved. I said a prayer someone told me to say, and then I walked out and lived like a complete pagan the rest of my life. And that is a sad, and it is a sorry, unbiblical view of salvation. You will find it nowhere. It is nothing more than a delusion. It is self-deception to think that you did a magic spell, and you don't follow Christ at all. Paul addressed this error in Romans 6, 1 and 2. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul has just laid out salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And now he's saying, look, but the fact that you have that grace, you're taking that the wrong way. You're not evidencing that you believe. Shall we continue in sin so that you can get more grace, more forgiveness? By no means, he says. This is such an emphatic term in Greek. It's, it's, he's shouting essentially, no way. This is ridiculous. That is a terrible idea. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? How? In fact, we have read in 1 John, think back several weeks ago, 3, verses 8 through 9. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, a habit, a pattern of sin, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Right? This is, you will know them by their fruits. We don't know the heart. Only God does. But you'll know them by the fruits of their life. The reality is, even with all of that, most people, most Christians even, really don't like texts like this. They want to back away from them as quick as possible when it says, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Because in that, they they see the demand to obey God's commandments, not a gift of God's grace, not an expression of his love for his children, but instead they see it as the impossible and unreasonable request of a terrible taskmaster and one in which they find absolutely no joy. They actually don't and can't read the psalm that we've been working through, right? Psalm 119, and you go back and you see verse 16, I delight in your statutes. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. Verse 40, but, but 
I long for your precepts. Verse 47, I find my delight in your commandments, right? It just goes on and on and on. And that is the heart of one who loves God and knows who he is and knows that he has done this for for our benefit as his children and his glory. The list goes on and on in Psalm 119. But the question for all of us is, examine yourselves. That's why John is writing this letter. Is that truly how you feel? Is that what you believe? Or do you, do you have in your mind that you've got a better way to go through the narrow gate? Jesus says many will take the wide path. But few will enter through the narrow gate. And there is no other way. You can't concoct one. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one is saved. No one enters heaven gates except through him. So this is why John adds a little color to that verse. He says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And get this, and his commandments are not burdensome. Did we just find the first error in Holy Scripture? His commandments are not burdensome? It's a sizable book. It's got commandments that we don't follow. We don't even try. There's whole churches that spend more effort trying to dissect and say these things don't say what they say than follow them. Did we find an error that his commandments are not burdensome? Many feel that way. I mean, and I think in, to some respect, all feel that way a little bit. I mean, really, every single one of God's commandments, his entire character, he's perfect, he's holy, he's righteous, he's just. And it says, and his commandments, all of them are not burdensome. Maybe this is because John is writing to some category of super-Christians out there. Those who stand far above the normal Christians. But you know that's not the case. We've said it time and time again that the Bible clearly speaks to this. There are only two people groups in the world in all of history. There are those who are saved. Saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, they are children of God. And there are those who are unsaved, and they are children of the devil. Jesus tells us that in John 8, 44. Right? We pray for them, we preach to them, we share the gospel with them. We're always trying to bring them to Christ. He's not writing to super-Christians. John is writing... Chapter 5, verse 13 tells us to believers, to all believers. So this applies to everyone. So why is it that for a believer, God's commandments are not burdensome? The answer is quite simple in the context of this. God's commandments are not burdensome to Christians because we love God. Because we are born of him. We are his children. We know that God has no delight in begrudging attempts to follow rules God actually doesn't take any delight in people sort of dragging themselves to church and then zoning out for an hour and just ticking a box because that's what they do on Sunday mornings. No, none of these rules that we follow by themselves, God takes any delight in. God is glorified and he's honored and he takes pleasure in us when because we love God, We obey his law because we obey it out of a desire to honor our father, to glorify him, to represent him to the world by our lives and show them there is a better way. Uh, He is glorified and honored when indeed we gather on the Lord's day because we love him above all things. Not because we feel guilty, not because our parents always told us to go to church. That's not why we go to church. 
We go because there's nothing more that we would like to do than to gather with the saints, those fellow children of God, and worship the Almighty God for who He is and what He has done for us. He is more important to us than our own bodies. He's more important to us than our hobbies. He's more important to us than our health. He should be. That's a problem we suffer with today is the idolization of health. We try to grab onto and hold onto something that we have no control over and then forego the one who controls all, who demands that we come, we gather, and we worship him. And we do that because we love him and we trust him, right? I wish I should have worked into this, the song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And we struggle with the trust and then we struggle with the obedience. But we all grew up singing the song. But trust and obey. Because we have life, and we have life only through Jesus Christ. That's the only way we have life. So obeying God is never burdensome when we do it because we adore God. When we recognize that he loved us enough to send his son to die for us, to die for us while we were still focused on ourselves, while we were still rebelling against him, while we lived in sin, and that's when he sent his son. He loved us. Now, John is not pointing here to perfection. That would take us back into that legalism thing. We would never achieve perfection. And I'll say it like I've said it many times. If there's one verse in 1 John to get in your head, it's 1 John 1.9, right? For if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Right? This one verse tells us that we will never achieve perfection. So when John is talking about these things, he's not saying You must be perfect, but he is saying you should be grieved at your sin and confess and repent and seek forgiveness from the one who is always faithful, always faithful to forgive. Oh, if we could only say that about ourselves and humanity, right? We are not always faithful to forgive, but God is. John is, in essence, pointing to the attitude of a believer, Not so much the performance, because baked right in here, hidden in this assurance that if we love God, truly love God as his child, that his commands will not be burdensome, we can look at that and we can answer that. I mean, we can answer it just by asking ourselves questions. Do I find following Christ, really following him according to his words, do I find that difficult? I mean, Difficult in ways that I'm rebelling against. Do I find that accepting his word that he has given to us too much for me because I'm wise and I'm cultural? Do I find ways, do I spend my time looking and searching for ways to work around what God has said? Am I seeking out those who are agents of the devil, right? The devil began by questioning and attacking God's word in Genesis 3.1. Did God actually say, right? That is how the devil operated from the start. That is how he operates today. And those who speak against God's word, those who pick it apart, those who tell you, well, we can take scissors and cut that out. It doesn't say what it says. They are agents of the devil. And do you spend your time seeking them out so they can give you comfort in your sin and rebellion? Is it too hard? You can ask yourselves, All these questions, am I constantly making compromises, trying to gain the approval of the world? Or does my life reflect the call that Romans 12 begins with? Do I present 
present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, which you do through God's word. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, and what is acceptable, and what is perfect. Even knowing all that, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that there are times that this is easy, and we know that there are times when we find it hard. And John acknowledges that essentially as we move to verse 4. Because we are in a battle. And when you're in a battle, there's an opposing force or else it would not be a battle. So let's read verse 4. Well, actually, let's start in verse 3. The end of verse 3. And his commandments are not burdensome. Why? Why? Verse 4. For or because. Because everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So you see now the connection as this is weaving back around. If you love God, you will naturally desire to obey his every word, all of scripture, everything he reveals, everything he commands, and none of it will create any resentment or fear or loathing. It'll only be joy because none of what God has spoken is burdensome in any way because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have been born of God. We are new creations We are still encased in sinful flesh, so we're not perfect in this life, but we are new creations. We are his children, and therefore we can can overcome every obstacle that is opposed to God. In other words, we can overcome the world. Keeping God's commandments, they're not just a sign of the new birth. It's a sign that we love God. And it stems not from fear or guilt, but true love and adoration. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Second Timothy 1.7. That, that is where our desire comes from. Our desire to obey him flows from our recognition that what God says is true. And what God says is right. Even when your own flesh in the world tells you otherwise and pulls you away from God and tempts you to rebel. So what John says here is a truth that we can't overlook. He's essentially saying that anything that makes God's commandments seem burdensome, seem onerous, seem terrible, uh, seems like something you do not want to do, that is the world. He's using the term world here in its broadest possible sense. It means anything and everything that stands in opposition to God and his way and his nature. We're commanded to worship God. We're commanded to honor him and to live for his glory. He has said to us, you shall be holy. Holy means set apart. You shall be holy, for I am holy. First Peter 1.16, and it's quoting Leviticus 11. You have to be careful not to narrow this down. That's not the way John is using it. World doesn't just include entertainment. Right? That's an easy one for us always to pick as Christians. That is included, but it's much broader than that. The way John is using world here, it can be external and it can be internal that is opposed to God. External is an easy target, and since we don't get three hours to go, we're going to sort of skip over that. We could do external all day. We've got countless examples, entertainment, politics, you name it. The world is opposed to God. The Bible tells us that. We know that. We can look at every example under the sun. I want us to focus on internal. 
That's a little more difficult for us. If we're honest, and we're examining ourselves, we know that there are times that it becomes very difficult to obey God, even to follow him in word and deed. Because at times, it puts us at great odds with family. If you have unbelieving family members that are really hostile to the gospel, I can tell you, it, and I know some of you do, you've shared, and we do, they quit talking to you. They, they don't want you around. It, it can be difficult to follow God. It can put you at odds with your own children, your parents, your aunts, your uncles, your brothers, your sisters. Sometimes it means we just can't join the communities that we want to be a part of, whether those are in person or online. Because nothing's hidden from God. It doesn't matter if we go behind closed doors and do it on the computer or on a phone. That is as visible to God as you running down Main Street and doing it. And you will stand and give an account for that behavior. Following God can sometimes require us to sacrifice our time and our resources just at that moment when we had other plans. And that's difficult. It gets in our way. It even requires us to put God above our personal notions of comfort and safety. These things that we just idolize and hang on to in the West. I, I wish some days that some of the people I hear, even pastors, pontificating ridiculous things about health and safety and, and setting God aside. I wish we could spend five minutes, or actually I don't wish I could, I'll, I'll be really honest, but in those regions where Christians are truly hunted down and persecuted, where they are meeting in secret on the Lord's Day to quietly sing so they won't be discovered, to bring out the pages that have been hidden from a Bible so they can read them yet once more to hear God's truth and to worship and to pray. They know what it means to put God first. We are so blessed that God has chosen us to live in this time, in this place, in this country, in the West. And it's amazing how we squander that away and we put self always above God. You see, God's commandments become burdensome to us only when our heart is set on something or someone else. That I want you to really grab onto because that is at the heart of what John is getting at. We can always justify our obstinance and our rebellion and our disobedience. We can do that in so many ways. God's commands, though, what he has revealed in his word, there are commands and they reflect his perfect and his holy nature and what he wants his children to be. Those commands only seem unfair and they only seem hard. They only seem burdensome when we really want to do something else. That's it. That is, the this, this, whole thing can be simplified that way. These things are not hard by themselves. They are only hard when our greater desire is for something or someone else. If you understand that one simple fact, then you understand the point John is making. He's just saying it. When you find obedience hard, when you decide to go another way that is not consistent with the love of God, that is a result of loving yourself. More than you love God. It is saying that I prefer my will 
I prefer my desires, I prefer my plans to anything that God has revealed or any of his desires. And at that moment, your fellowship with God is broken. It is broken until you repent. What he put in place for your good and his glory, for you at that time, it will seem intolerable. It will seem unfair, it'll seem restrictive, it'll seem unsafe, it'll fit any category you want, but you can come up with any way to to excuse the fact that you just want to ignore it. You just want to substitute your own way for God's. You can pick any example here. God commands us to worship him in a particular way. And so many today are saying, I'll worship God my way. I'll worship him my way because it makes me feel better. It makes me feel better to do it my way. I don't want to do it his way. But you see, inherent in that is me, right? When your excuse for God about your obedience or lack thereof starts with I or me or what it does for me, you have lost sight here. You are in an environment where it is me versus God. There is a winner in that every single time. I don't think I have to go into great lengths in the Bible to explain to you who wins when it's the creature versus the creator. It's pretty easy to figure that one out. But if your focus is on yourself, if it's on your instant gratification, your pleasures, your reputation, your acceptance by the crowds that you want to be accepted by, if it's on you, the commands of God are always going to seem very burdensome and very difficult. But if your focus is on Christ, if he is the center of your affections, your deepest and greatest love, if you understand what he has done to save you, you can't help but love God. You can't help but realize that your life, your eternal life, is given over to him, that he is Lord of all. And his commands will not seem burdensome at that point. The world, it's internal, it's external, it's the opponent we face. When we submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have to remember you are following a Lord who was hated by his own people, who was kicked out of towns, who ultimately was arrested, who was beaten, who was mocked, who suffered, and was crucified. That's the Savior you're signed up to follow for eternity. And so we enter a real battle. But we know who wins. That's the greatest part of it. We know who wins. Even when we suffer, we might lose the battle, but the war will be won by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Ephesians 6.12 warns us of this. It says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But these spiritual forces use people. So we do face it for real. We can easily deceive ourselves out of this. We can get convinced of our own self-righteousness, even as we depart from the way of Christ. James 4, James speaks to this. He says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet 
and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, but you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. You want to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people. We read that in scripture. We have to remember the metaphor of marriage, right? Marriage is a picture of Christ in his church. You adulterous people, you claim to follow Christ. But then you go out with the world. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Uh, This is tough for some people because I've had these discussions and people want to deny that we're even in a fight. It's almost always driven by a desire to warm up to some worldly agenda because they like it and it feels right and they decide that it's good. And ultimately what it comes down to when you return to scripture is, well, it can mean anything. It's not clear. I don't understand it. Um, I refuse to accept it. And there are two things going on there. Scripture interprets Scripture. There are some hard passages, but the rest of the Bible speaks to it, and that's how you interpret it. But what's really going on there is I don't want to believe, and I refuse to believe that God says what he says, and so I'm going to put the onus on God and say he couldn't clearly communicate. I want you, as you hear those excuses being made, to realize how ludicrous those statements really are. That God's word is too fuzzy, it's, it, you can't decipher it, Really? That you, are, you are telling me that you believe in and you follow the very God who created the universe, who spoke everything into existence that was ever made in six days, that he created people, that he upholds and sustains the universe with his power, that he saves from sin, that he's the righteous judge. That God can't figure out how to communicate with the very people that he made. He's powerless to get his word across clearly. He doesn't know how to do it. That's absurd. That is one of the dumbest things that a person can argue. That is absurd. That is just to say you don't believe in God. You just can't escape the fact that you are part of a battle with the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is known for his very direct statements at times, and he earned the right to do that from 30 plus years of preaching at Westminster and everything he wrote, he wrote this, and I love it. He said, people who have no sense of conflict at all in their lives are patently just not Christians. They are in the sleep of death spiritually. The moment men and women become alive spiritually, they are aware of these forces and powers, and at once they're aware of conflict. The world is opposed to Christ. You can't ignore that if you know your Bible and believe it. There are two things there. The atheists know the Bible. The devil knows the Bible. If you know your Bible and believe it and follow Christ, you know that there are opposing forces. Uh, Romans 6, 16, the Apostle Paul, he writes about either side of this conflict. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. And that just takes us full circle around the circle we've been on of the Christian life, being born of God, and then we see that evidence through faith, love, and obedience, the three tests that John has laid out, and he concludes right where he began in verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We've already talked about the world. That is our internal and external oppositions. But what John says is whoever's been born of God, whatever originates from God himself, overcomes the world. And the same faith that evidences the fact that you have been born of God, it overcomes all of this opposition. Uh, The faith is characterized by John in this short passage in both Jesus is the Christ, that's what you believe, verse 1, and Jesus is the Son of God, verse 5. It is shorthand. We've talked about this before. It is shorthand for the fact that you believe that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, was born of a virgin, that he lived perfectly in obedience to God's law, gall of God's law, God's will, because we cannot. We can never satisfy it, but he did, and he was the God-man. He was truly God and truly man, and that though without sin, because of his perfect obedience, he suffered, and he went to the cross, and he drank down the full dregs of God's wrath against our sin, he took the penalty that we justly and fairly deserve if we'll just repent, turn away from our sin, and believe in him. That is what you believe. That's what John is saying. In short, he's saying he is God's anointed Savior. That is what Christ means. He is God's anointed. He is chosen to save. He is the way and the truth and the life, and no one will come to the Father except through Jesus. The entire passage, it really points us to this, that those who faithfully hold on to the truth, God's word, who cling to him because of who God is and what he has done to save us, That when we faithfully submit to Jesus Christ as Lord, we'll continue to serve him because we've overcome the world. We won't be without our challenges. We will still fight. We'll still have difficulty. But we will have a longing and a desire to please him and to honor him and glorify him because we love him and we know what he has done. We'll love each other. Because seeing in each other, what we see is the very children of God. The people that he sent his son for to die on the cross just like us. Those very people that the Holy Spirit indwells just like he indwells us. We can't help but love each other if we can just see God in that way. The true Christian will remain faithful. And they'll remain faithful not on our own power. God forbid, thankfully, he doesn't leave us on our own. Uh, Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. You see that? Jesus is our sanctuary. He's not only our victory. uh, He is actually our safety net. When it seems like we're going to be overrun with fear or temptation or, God forbid, even persecution, he's our strength. He's our safety net. We draw all of our strength from Christ alone. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches, right? The branches have no strength except for what they're drawing from the vine. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You cannot stand on your own. You just can't stand on your own. This is meant to give us great assurance, to draw us to Christ. And if it's problematic, we just need to remember it's ultimately not your own strength that will hold you. It's not your ability to muster up enough faith to remain strong. You are ultimately relying on God himself 
You come to Christ on your knees and he lifts you up. He carries you through. He's always faithful. It is he who has done a mighty work to save you. Galatians 2.20, this is where we'll close. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live is in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. But did he give himself for you? Right? That's your question. Test yourself. If you have doubts, come see me. Grab me today. Come in any time during the week. Let's talk this through. If you have doubts, remember what the Bible says. Today is your day. Today is the day of salvation. You are not guaranteed any more time in life. You may think you're in control. God's in control. Today's the day of salvation. Did he die for you? Enter by the narrow gate. Come to Christ, whose yoke is easy and burden is light. He calls all to, to repent and believe in him and his promise is eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that we see that evidently poured out through Jesus Christ, through your Son. Lord, we're thankful that he ascended to your right hand, that he serves and continues to serve as our mediator, interceding for us daily, helping us when we do not know what to pray. God, we pray that you would work powerfully in our lives, powerfully to draw us to your word, powerfully to draw us to obedience, powerfully to resist doubt. God, we remember the man who shouted out, I believe, help my unbelief. And there are times when every one of us cries out to you, help my unbelief. Make me strong. Give me wisdom. Give me words. Lord, we pray that we would not succumb to fear. Oh, the terrible tool used by those who are opposed to you. We pray that we would remember always that You've not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Let us exercise each one of those. And give us the ability to witness, to show the love of Christ to a world that desperately needs him, whose only hope can be found in the one they deny. God, help us make it real when you say that we are ambassadors for our Lord Jesus. Let us represent him in our behavior, in our thoughts, in our words, in every circumstance that we find ourselves in. And God, we pray, painful as it might be, that your spirit would convict us of our sin. Lord, when we think we're doing right, and it is opposed to you, let your spirit drive a sense of wrong. Drive us to our knees. We are so thankful, Lord, that you promise that you are always faithful. You are always faithful to forgive the repentant sinner. You call all to come to you. Lord, use us as the instruments to call them, to proclaim your gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.